So let's get back into the idea of gears and how they function within the body. You remember pennate muscle fibers, more extensor-based stuff, is going to be associated with a lower gear or higher force or more torque. A parallel is going to be associated with a higher gear or less force or less torque. And the premise is there's less sarcomeres in a given area, so therefore we have less force generating potential versus a pennate fiber, pennate fiber has more, more sarcomeres in a given area, so they have a higher force generating potential, right? So I want to dive into this idea of what exercises require a lower gear and what exercises require a higher gear, right? So if we break it down, you know, thinking about extension, uh, knee extension, tricep elbow extension versus flexion, knee flexion or elbow flexion, a parallel muscle fiber associated with flexion is going to be at a mechanical advantage. So at all times, if we look at it, depending on where that joint action starts from, determines a mechanical advantage or disadvantage, right? So if we look at it from the context of a flexor-based muscle group and flexion-based action, you know, we want to look at this third-class lever function. And again, this lever concept is a loosely termed because there's zero contact between the fulcrum, the moment, or the effort arm, that depending on where that joint position is relative to gravity determines the mechanical advantage or disadvantage. Right, we're going to talk about mechanical advantage and disadvantage on our next movement module, which will have a huge, huge amount of impact in terms of, again, exercise selection. But again, if we look at the flexor-based muscle, which has less sarcomeres, and if we look at it from the concept of, of this idea of pennate muscle fibers have more sarcomeres, pennate muscle fibers are organic solution to being a mechanical disadvantage i.e. that they are initiating their concentric action parallel to gravity. So imagine a forearm parallel to gravity when you're doing tricep extensions or a thigh or femur parallel to gravity when you're doing a squat. Conversely, a flexor-based muscle is going to start from perpendicular to gravity. So, right, we're going to start to initiate a bicep curl with our forearm perpendicular to gravity versus a a, uh, a leg curl, which is going to be inverted, but it's perpendicular to the line of resistance, uh, where we're going to have a extended position going into flexion. And that creates a mechanical advantage. So this idea of mechanical advantage, disadvantage, is really in relation to the position of gravity. And it goes into this third-class lever function, right? So if we look at the mechanical advantage or disadvantage, is simply where that effort or the muscle sits between the fulcrum, where that rotates against and the load, right? So if I have a third class lever of an elbow or a knee and the effort arm is further away from the actual fulcrum or the resistance, then we need to create more force. Therefore, I have to have a more amount of sarcomeres in that given area. And I think this has a lot of, a lot of impact on certain exercise selection, and then loading the beginning, the middle, or the end range of that muscle, uh, loading the proximal and distal orients of that muscle. Uh, there is an element of when we look at 
performance outcomes. What is an outcome of an exercise, right? This We talked about it briefly, but this idea of movements, not muscles, but muscles are the things making the movements occur, pulling on connective tissue, which pulls on bones, which makes joint actions happen. Well, what is the, the gross outcome? And, and the thing that always is like beyond me of like, oh, I don't need to talk about bodybuilding. Or it's all about uh, this myofibril hypertrophy, like Bottom line, cross-sectional muscle area is always going to be related to increasing force output or performance output. Every single time. So if we don't have an appreciation of how to change the architecture of a muscle that's orienting these joint actions, that's orienting these movements, we're always going to be coming up quote-unquote short. Right? And there's objective ways to evaluate it. Right, I can look at a cross-sectional muscle area. I can look at lean muscle mass. I can look at the force-generating positions through using a dynamometer of like each individual joint. So if my flexion is much less than my extension, that creates some sort of structural imbalance and some sort of overuse or tendinopathy or something where I'm diminishing performance. Right? You see boxers who are only punching and jabbing. They're only doing extensions. You know, you see. Golf's, are, golf's only swinging from right to left, depending on their hand. You know, we see pitchers only throwing with their right hand. They're using these very, very specific movement patterns over and over and over again that's eccentrically and concentrically and isometrically loading the tissues associated with that movement pattern. There's an element of, yeah, injury reduction might come from putting more tread on the tire. Also, there's an element of, hey, I might be able to increase the bandwidth of that movement because I have a greater potential because the cross-sectional muscle area is more robust all around. But again, flexor and extensor muscles are different. Parallel and pennate muscle fibers are different. Physics and just quite frankly, understanding its relation to movement has a foundational principle for this. But then too, remember that this is just a model. That complex open, open multivariate systems will always have a very strong, strong ability to not do what we want when we want it to do it. And that's an issue, right? That becomes a primary thing when we're thinking about trying to create the movement patterns that we want and trying to create the outcomes that we want. But thinking about it from this point too, when I'm thinking about hamstring development, and I can go all the way back to Charles Pollock when talking about it's a higher distribution of, of fast twitch muscle fibers, whether it's type 2X or type 2B, comparatively speaking to a extensor muscle group like a quadricep, which is going to have a, more, of a, more of a combination, right? So you look at a VMO versus a rec fem versus a vastus intermedius or lateralis. You know, there's this dynamic at play that the force length curve is, is pretty long. The, the predominant amount of muscle or sarcomeres are always going to be in, in the middle portion of that muscle belly. The, the strength curve associated with certain movement patterns or the association of altering center or mass to accommodate that, that mechanical advantage, disadvantage continuum, this element of rate of force development and the force velocity curve, all these things are in the back of your mind. And I, I, I strongly encourage you to go through all of our modules on this one because you have to look at this in such a like multivariate way to make any kind of a sense of it. Because everything is working all the time and every model is, is applicable at any given time. You just need to be able to discern between each one to understand how to utilize this 
gear ratio function within training. But if you're looking at it from just very simple, if I see, let's just classify contractile tissue as red, if I can track, if I classify as connective tissue as white, if I see more red than white, so aka more contractile than than connective, or if I see more white than red, i.e. there's more connective than contractile, what is going to be the actual function of that muscle? And if I have a architectural arrangement that allows for more sarcomeres versus an architectural arrangement that allows for less sarcomeres, what is going to be the function of that muscle? And therefore, how should I train it? How should I train a hamstring, relatively speaking, to a quadricept? And how should I think about orienting the movement patterns based off mechanical, mechanical advantage versus disadvantage? That if I have a muscle group that's a mechanical advantage that doesn't need as much force generating capability, how should I load the beginning, middle, and end range of that movement pattern? If you're more familiar with the FRC world, the open versus the closing angle. How do I create tension at the distal and proximal ends of that, that muscle versus a more pennate muscle fiber, which has a higher amount of sarcomeres, and understanding that chances are there's probably going to be more of a distribution in the middle of that belly anyway. We're mechanically more advantaged on a mechanically disadvantaged muscle group or joint action. And we limit that by doing partial train range of motion or we limit that by overloading a already strong position anyway. And here's the ironic part of all of this. This is why training through a full range of motion is so paramount. Because we become over-reliant on connective tissue, our chances of injury during eccentric loading become increased. So in order to have, we need to have passive range, we need to have active range. In order to have active range, we need to have contractile ability at that increased range. And that comes from contractile tissue, and that might come directly associated with more distal and proximal sarcomeres along a parallel muscle fiber, as well as we look at a strength curve associated with extensor-based muscle fibers and overcoming and pushing through that quote-unquote sticking point that mechanically we're always strongest going to be at the middle of that movement. So I'll have more sarcomeres there than I will in the proximal distal. Again, it comes down to training through a full range of motion. And we could talk about this from the concept of eccentric versus isometric and looking at a yielding versus an overcoming continuum. And we can look at, hey, I want to create tension at the distal by eccentrically loading it. And I want to create tension at the proximal by concentrically overloading it. Or I want to create tension by overcoming ISOs or yielding. I want to create more mechanical damage by yielding ISOs. And there's a lot of ways we can go through this. But where I'll come back and say is, okay, like, if I'm only training proximal to distal, if I'm only training distal to proximal, if I'm only training through the, the range that creates sarcomere adaptations within the middle of that muscle, if I'm never doing anything longitudinally, if I only go through a partial range of motion, if I don't have at least a bandwidth of understanding that at certain start positions, this is why we always do better with extensor-based muscles preceded with an eccentric versus flexor-based muscles preceded with a concentric Right? And this goes into a whole thing of breathing patterns. Right? So if I'm concentrally oriented, that means I'm going to have a, more, a, higher, a higher ability 
within this context of looking at extensor-based stuff. So if I'm more inhale dominant, I'll take a breath in. Chances are I'm going to have a higher, a more mesomorph type body type, more wider ISA. I'll be able to produce more for, for, force extensor wise. And if we're looking at this from the concept of Stu McGill's model of short to long, long to short, push people are going to be better doing a long to short, training the weakness into the strength because they're already good in terms of acceleration. So the short versus this exhale type where I'm better at pushing air out a more narrow ISA or infrasternal angle, they're going to be better in terms of flexor-based stuff and better in pull-type stuff and maybe better with a progression of long to short. If you want to learn more about that, definitely get the book Strength Deficit. I go through a lot about that. Also go through hydrodynamics, lever length, um, obviously gear ratio, mechanical advantage. We'll go through that as well. But here's the key. Here's what we've got to think about when we're talking about gear ratio relatively to muscle architecture, relatively speaking to function. Full range of motion is always going to be the primary. Like, I, stop with this narrative that strength is the mother of all qualities. Range of motion is strong through a full range of motion is. I know that might come off as, as sacrilegious, and I talk about this with our question, our question through the forum every single week, but we just finished Force Velocity and Work uh, Guided Curriculum, and we asked the question, is strength really the mother of all qualities? And it's a it's a loaded question, and chances are, majority of the time, it's going to work really well, but that logic is flawed. It's not a principle. It's not absolutely true. We just talked about with confirmational bias, that the first thing to do to challenge confirmational bias is going to come in this notion of challenge assumptions and then find alternate perspectives. Challenge assumptions and, ch- and find alternate perspectives. The strong enough, it's not, it's not a good question. Because it gets this premise that strength is still, above all else, more important than anything else. Chances are a person who's faster is going to be better. And I don't necessarily think that increasing force is absolutely critical to, or I should say absolutely synonymous with increasing velocity. There's a benefit, but there's a point of diminishing returns from a body mass perspective and then a rate of force development component. Absolute strength is not synonymous with, with high rates of force development. There's a correlation, but it's not a causation. But it goes back down to what I would say, definitively, if I have greater bandwidth of the joints based off a flexor or extensor-based muscle that has a high or low gear ratio, and if I could produce force over a larger period or larger period of time or range of motion, chances are I'll have a better force velocity curve, of a better strength curve, of a better management of mechanical advantage or disadvantage. That if I want to really train a muscle that is going to be equatable or functioning with with this idea of a better performance and better overall movement, I need to at least start with, hey, having a greater understanding and perspective of producing force over a larger bandwidth is going to have more, more applicability to everything that I want. Bottom line. Now, on the other end, it goes through, okay, like let's go back to Bud Sharinga's analogy of of weightlifting has evolved to the more phosphored flop, that I'm not pulling the bar higher, that I'm simply dropping lower. And think about that for a second. The reason why certain countries have evolved so well in terms of weightlifting, snatch and clean and jerk, if you're not familiar with that term, is because they have a better rationale as to what actually is truly better in terms of performance. Doesn't matter if you pull it higher. And here's the other catch-22. 
utilizing PEDs is harder to do. And this is Bud's point. If we can't use PEDs as regularly, and PEDs are probably going to be more associated with the amount of force we can produce, and that's directly correlated to potentially testosterone, but also to leveraging more extensor, lower gear muscle fibers, versus if I can't do that, and I have to find a strategy where I can't utilize testosterone and produce as much force and have as much sarcomeres or muscle mass to accomplish the job, how would I do it? Well, I got to be able to pull and I got to be able to drop faster and drop lower. Ha, ah, oh, okay. Now, if I'm looking at this from a snatch or a clean and jerk perspective, and mostly just looking at the clean, because I still think no matter which way you want to cut it, if you're a squat jerk person, the chances are you're going to really struggle because you just don't have a lot of muscle mass and you're better at dropping under it. But, which is always funny to me because I look at nine out of 10 people I talk to in America that are going to be doing weightlifting, always struggle with the always struggle with the clean, relatively speaking, to the jerk. And then nine out of 10 people outside of America always struggle with the jerk as opposed to the clean, um, which is funny because I'm sure if like you ask anyone outside of America, they're probably clean max, relatively speaking, to the clean and jerk max is probably 110 to 120% versus in America, it's probably going to be 90% of their, uh, or uh, their, their clean is going to be 90% to their, uh, their jerk max um, on some ratio because um, you look at it and it's like I think it's the other thing too of look at it like there's a lot of goalies that do really well in soccer or football you know and like Americans just simply are different we focus on throwing and catching more so than other countries we we focus more on pressing and extending more so than other countries like powerlifting is bigger than America than any other country in the world and there's a reason behind that we like to push and we like to push things. And I, and I would come back and say, of like how that translates to movement, if I have to take an approach where I can't use PEDs as, regular, as regularly as I, as I normally could, and I can't rely on high force outputs or high testosterone-driven outcomes like high force outputs, and I have to find a more efficient path, and instead of trying to jump higher like Fosberg figured out, it can say I can get my head over and catapult my bar. Now I can just pull to my belly button and drop under it. That's going to be a different focal point. And you look at it to this idea of low gear versus high gear, efficiency and pulling. And this is the same thing we talk about acceleration in terms of top end or maximum velocity and why strength training correlates so well to acceleration and not max velocity. There's this dynamic at play. If I'm looking at my ability to have a short ground contact time in a more upright position, relying on more of the posterior chain, and this more rapid reaction to the ground, the efficiency of the muscle fibers and the posterior aspect of my body, flexor-oriented muscles, become more recruited. This is why more hamstring pulls occur during top-end speed than they do acceleration. Versus if I have spend more time on the ground and I have a longer ground contact time, and I'm basically just doing a bunch of terminal knee extensions through acceleration, strength training definitely blends itself to that. But then you look at the splits of a tumble and running a, a 40 or maybe even a 60 meter, and most improvement occurs between the first 10 to 20 meters of someone who's strength training pretty rigorously and pretty much nominal, if maybe even get worse in the back 20 to 40 meters. And then compare that to someone who's focusing on this 
short or long to short progression and they're more pull oriented and they can snatch a whole lot and they can do a lot of, they can do a high weight on pull-ups and they can RDL a ton and they look like basically they can barely squat their own body weight. You see back end improvement there and you basically see this like inverted approach. And this is why I come back to saying like strength is not the mother of all qualities because it's so limited to certain exercises. Like someone squat benching and deadlifting a certain amount doesn't really matter relatively speaking to performance or injury reduction. It matters in some capacity if it's really weak, but it's not really as important as many people lay it out to be. And then when we understand gear ratio, we're accentuating an already strong, already strong muscle that is overcoming a mechanically disadvantaged position, i.e. more extensor-based muscles that already have a low gear potential. But if I can't heat a high gear and do a high amount of velocity... And I'm wondering why I'm not getting faster. I'm wondering why I'm always getting hurt. I'm wondering why I'm not as efficient as I should be. That I can't hit this this higher gear with these parallel, more flexor-based muscle fibers. Then I'm always going to figure out, like, where do I go from there? And I hope this is coming across as, like, as one dual part of, okay, there's, there's a reckoning I need to do of, like, all right, I am pretty locked in on certain exercises or certain things that I think are KPI. Um, I'm, I'm married myself to, I find the, and this is hopefully comes off as funny, but the idea of like uh, strength is the mother of all qualities is literally like if you ate first, you're last. And like the real, reality of the situation when like, you look at it from, I live my whole life based off of that, based off my father being drunk and saying something stupid. Like a lot of strength coaches that come before us have said that over and over and over again. It becomes central dogma and it becomes this belief structure that is absolutely true. And it gets locked into if you can't squat three times your body weight, you're not strong. It doesn't change the fact there's plenty of people in the world who are really good at stuff and sports that can barely squat their body weight. How? They're more efficient. They took a different approach. They can, there's plenty of people in the world who can snatch pretty much their body weight and above who can barely squat their body weight. How does that happen? They're more eccentric or they're more elastic. They, more, they have better, better efficiency in movement. They have better range of motion. They could time it. They can utilize this elastic opponent of dropping below it and bouncing out of the bottom and creating enough momentum. Remember, fluids are moving. So all I got to do is create enough iner- overcome enough inertia to create momentum and accelerate through whatever mechanically weak position I'm at. They don't need as much as much of this cross-sectional area if I can utilize elastic energy and drive through whatever mechanically disadvantaged position. And the same thing applies to running, right? What do you see when someone stands straight up in acceleration? You're like, damn, that person's that person's really weak. But chances are they're probably really strong because usually the strongest people are the people who stand up quickest. They're just not as efficient. They, you don't, they can't re- react to that eccentric load. They're not as elastic. They don't create as much momentum of the fluids within the joints and can't maintain a position as long as they can. So what you see is this, is this delayed or decreased performance in terms of running or change of direction and managing forces within the body. Someone's trying to do a pro agility and they can't manage procession, they're screwed. And that comes down to one, orienting your foot, having enough range of motion in the ankle, knee, and hip, having enough postural control and enough stability to decelerate or eccentrically load. And that comes from timing and utilizing more passive structures, aka these these low, these high gear muscles, 
and be able to come out through that. I remember we talked about it before. Doug Brignole said the second-class levers can create a rotary force within that joint that controls the primary joint action or the primary muscle group. And those are probably coming through the fact that those are higher gear muscles and they can create more momentum, they can create more velocity and help that maybe mechanically disadvantaged position with a very inefficient muscle group that's basically low gear at all times, but then it has this massive rapid force. You know, you're thinking about you've been pressing this high gear, you create enough momentum, and then that bike wheel is just turning. Well, then all of a sudden now you start to think about it. All right, well, if I really want to associate performance with gear ratio, I got to train through a full range of motion to create as much adaptation between the distal, the middle, and the proximal portion of that muscle. I got to have structural balance and equal distribution of forces placed between the anterior, posterior, lateral, and medial, and transverse-oriented muscles. I got to have this focal point of strength and weaknesses, this pull person, this push person, this wide or narrow ISA, this person that does better with acceleration versus top end speed and develop them based off this weakness of strength type of continuum. And there's this other element we could we talk about periodization in that module there going through, all right, maybe there's a peaking or maybe there's developing of a weakness strategy here that we need to apply. That's a conversation in itself. But as I look through gear ratio, relatively speaking, to movement, it's just simply understanding physics and third class levers move in certain ways. And there's a certain there's a certain relative distance between the force and the moment arm that I need to appreciate in order to really accommodate mechanical and disadvantage or advantage. And there's certain inhale or exhale biases or concentric or eccentric biases that facilitate better movement. And there's a lot of variables to go through this. And that's why we have 12 modules associated with just movement that dive into each one of these individually. And gear ratio is is a part of a very complicated, I would say complex system that we really need to associate with, but it starts with removing bias and challenging assumptions and find alternate perspectives. A lot to unpack here, guys. Just a lot, actually. And honestly, like I'm sure you're probably head spinning. You're probably going, what the hell did this guy just talk about? Get on the curriculum. There's graphics, there's pictures, there's there's videos, there's me, um, there's everything. So I feel like that. And then best part about it is there's forums. We can talk about this, ask questions who are blue in the face. But this is a great module for you to dive into. So I hope this helps, guys. Make sure you check out the case study and then uh, move on to that mechanical advantage, disadvantage. All right, here we go.